So I've been sick this week, and so I've had, that means I've had a lot of time to think, which is not necessarily a good thing if you're preparing a sermon. So I have a lot of things to talk about tonight, and I have 15 minutes to do it. A lot is happening this weekend. In addition to the snow, it's also benching Rosh Chodesh Adar. Tomorrow we're going to be heralding in the, the new moon of Adar, which is the 12th month of the Hebrew calendar, which is an auspicious day. And we're also reading the first of the four special parshiot, special readings that precede Passover. Tomorrow is, or this Shabbos is called Shabbos Shkolem. It's the Shabbat of reading about the half shekel in Parshat Kitisa. And it's also, of course, as I say every year, I think it's five years running, it is the Shabbat of taken from Jack Cornfield's book After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Parshat Mishpatim is the Shabbat, the reading that is after the ecstasy of Mount Sinai, the laundry list of ethical and moral precepts that to some degree govern a very mundane moment-to-moment life after the heights and the depths of the sounds and the sights of Sinai. We arrive at Parshat Mishpatim, the Elah Mishpatim, and these are the Mishpatim, these are the laws, these are the, these are the walking of the talking that is Sinai. So we're going to try to look together at the beginning of the reading this week, Parshat Prishpatim, the first chapter, the first law given in this laundry list of things to do. And we're going to connect it also to the last moment in the reading. But first, Mark Nepo. His work, living, finding inner courage, is everywhere in this talk. He writes that in Buddhism, near enemies are the title given to traits and efforts that look like earnest steps towards right being and right action, but that are actually counterfeit enticements. Near enemies are those things that are kind of sort of like the real thing, but aren't. They're near. For instance, he writes, the near enemy of true selflessness might be an obsession with self-sacrifice in order to be regarded as having no self. The near enemy of true compassion might be pity, which brings us close without feeling the other. The near enemy of true patience might be hiding, and the near enemy of acceptance might be tolerance. And then he quotes a friend of his who said that one of the great near enemies that we all have is grandiose dreams. It doesn't take courage, he writes, to have grandiose dreams. Grandiose dreams are a way that we have of not touching the next moment, of not breaking down something very big into something very small, something that manages is, that is manageable, something that is livable, something that is alive and possible. To have grandiose dreams sometimes is a way of avoiding the very concrete next moment. He brings a story from Carl Jung in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, where Jung recounts how he wrestled with a dream that freed him from his elevated self. He had dreamt that he and a primitive man had tracked down a noble and learned professor by the name of Siegfried, 
who seemed virtuous and committed to the highest ideals. To his surprise, Jung and the primitive man then murdered Siegfried. This dream so troubled Jung that he wrote to a friend that he felt compelled to solve its meaning or he would have to take his own life. He felt an urgent need to face what was under this dream in order to go on. Eventually, he realized that Siegfried was his own distant, noble self, his golden ego, the near enemy of altruism, and that the dream was telling Jung that it was necessary to silence all his ambitions, no matter how noble, in order to free himself from the trappings of his ego. Later, Jung concluded that he would have never been open enough to discover the unconscious had he not put Siegfried, Siegfried to, the, to rest. The dream, it turns out, was instructing Jung to remove all of his masks. He had taken such care in carving for himself even his beautiful ones. What a beautiful lesson for each and every one of us. There is something in that beautiful mask that we create. There is something in that noble self. There is something in Sinai and the power of Sinai, the power of revelation, the power of a moment that is frozen in time. There's the power of, of epiphanies, the light show, that makes it difficult to see beyond Siegfried, beyond the ego, beyond all of the trappings that are its, its wake. So let's talk about Sinai. Let's talk about listening at Sinai, and let's talk about chickens. If chickens don't get enough light, they start pecking at each other. The truth is that humans are no different. Once the pecking begins, we are called to three, we are called to three forms of work. Stop the pecking, heal the wounds, and seek out more light. The eternal squabble has always been, which of these efforts come first? Is it governance and law, medical and social healing, or education? Of course, an educational and enlightened community does all three, but the deeper question is, what combination will provide a lasting solution? The removal of light causes us to peck at ourselves and each other. Ironically, the more removed we are from the light, the less faith we have in its restorative powers until all our energy is spent strategizing how to peck or how to avoid being pecked, writes Mark Nepo. Then the first task for any newcomer, regardless of their community, is to learn the pecking order. <laughs> now he writes, before farmers realized it was a lack of light that prompted all of this pecking, we thought it was due to the nature of chickens, that they were loners who couldn't mingle without being nasty. In some quarters, they, their beaks were clipped, but this only made it more difficult for them to eat. It only made them hungry until hunger and lack of light made them peck at each other even more. You get the parallels, right? It's not the free range, he writes, of our thinking and the depth of our feelings that are dangerous, but that our minds and hearts are often incubated in the dark. Our minds and hearts are often incubated in the dark. And we just need to hold each other more fully in the light. So you would expect me to talk about Mishpatim as I began. This Parsha is 
the educational element. It is the governance. We had light shows, and now the Torah says, okay, great. Break it into small pieces, like I said. Get out of your grandiose dreams. Make it real and govern. Make laws. Don't do this and don't do that. That's, of course, what the Parsha is all about. And yet the first law in this week's reading is the law of the Hebrew slave. And something fantastic happens with the law of the Hebrew slave. The Torah tells us that a Hebrew slave, who of course has become an indentured servant, it's a beautiful thing the Torah did, it was way ahead of its time, it allowed somebody who was at the, the end of their rope to work themselves out of debt, to work themselves out of a place of, of despair. And the amount of time the Torah actually gives to this is allotted. Six years. Six years you are to work, to release yourself from debt, to remove yourself from your credit cards, to get it all wiped clean. You have six years. And then the Torah says, but if at the end of the sixth year you come and you say, Adoni, I love my master, I'd like to, have to stay with him. It's good. It's good for me there. I'm working well in my in my situation with my master, ahavti, I love my master, such a strong word, ahavti tadoni. Then the Torah says, Vihigi you should bring that person, you should bring that slave to the doorpost and bring his ear to the doorpost and pierce his ear. It says, Chazal, say the rabbis, the ear that heard anochi Adonai Lohecha, the ear that heard, I am the Lord your God, and you are my servant, servant of the Most High, that ear has to be pierced. Says Aviva Zornberg, a slave who loves his master, who has abdicated the difficult freedom that transcends rote living, has offended primarily against his own hearing. In token of a failure in the work of transcendence, his ear is marked. Quoting the Sfat Emet, she writes, When he said, I love my master, set that against the commandment, you shall love your God. Effectively, the slave is proclaiming an easier way of loving God through love of the master and all of the provisions of his slave status. Preferring the indirect form of religious life, this represents a regressive mode of failure, essentially, of the ear. And then quoting a verse later on in the Torah, the already revealed is to be obeyed, but beyond that and closer to the heart of the spiritual life is the constant quest indicated by the nishma, we shall hear. What is she referring to? At the end of this week's reading... It begins with an ear, right, with the slave, but it ends with the Jewish people saying, we will do and we will hear. Na'asev and Ishma, they received Torah again, just as they received it last week, but this time without the light show and without all of the craziness, they said, we will do and we will hear. And quoting a teaching from Rav Nachman of Breslev, Rav Nachman of Breslev says, that we will do and we will hear doesn't mean we will obey and then we will understand, as it usually is translated. We will do and we will hear is every moment of our life we have what we know, which is we will do. Whatever it is that is available to us is what we can do. Rav Nachman says don't read it as obedience, but read it as what you get. 
where you are. Naaseh is, I will start from here. Nishma means, what's next? Like a crown on the top of the head, Rav Nachman says, Nishma is that thing that hovers beyond your perception, beyond your knowing, beyond your current state of consciousness. That we will hear of the Israelites read through Hasidic lens and quoted here by Aviva Zornberg is the promise that growth and the spiral of growth will not end. And that I promise as the moon promises to turn each day in the spiral of life back to the sun, I promise each and every morning and each and every evening as I wake up to go beyond my current naseh, to go beyond my current where I am, what I can do, who I am, and who I can be, to move beyond, to grasp for that crown that hovers ever so slightly above my head. A man's reach should always, ex- man's reach Right? A man's heaven should always exceed his grass. His grass should always exceed his reach. Or what's a heaven for? I'm reaching for a heaven. I don't stop. To stop reaching for a heaven, says Rav Nachman, is to fundamentally fail to receive Torah. To live in the grandiosity of the first revelation of lights and shows. But to show up this week in the first moment of the Torah, telling me my laundry list, is to give up my slave status. To remove the masters that I love and who in some way injure and puncture the ear that listens for the next moment. That breaks things down into small pieces and says, what's next? What's before me? She writes, in this analysis, freedom becomes essential to loving God and doing his will. A static obedience misses the point. Since it is the desire to be more than one is, to lay oneself open to intimations beyond one's experience that marks the spirituality of Nasev and Ishma, we shall do and we shall hear. The slave says, I will not leave my master. Lo Adoni, I love him. Lo and in that two words, lo say, I will not leave, Aviva Zornberg says, we can hear the demonic cry. The entire book of Exodus is about Yitzi at Mitzrayim, leaving Egypt. And the, and the slave says, lo say, I'm not leaving. We have on one hand Yitzi at Mitzrayim, I will leave Yitzi, I will leave. And lo say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm fine in my job. I'm fine in my relationship. I'm fine in everything that hems me in because I'm not sure. Adoni, I love my master. My master's name is settling. My master's name is complacency. My master's name is safety. My master's name is I'm not sure. Adoni. But listen, Rabbi, listen, my sweet friend. You just left. You just left. You saw miracles. You saw plagues. There was a sea in front of you. It's good for me here. I'm okay. No, don't worry about me. I'm good. I'm good. So we arrive at Shabbat Shkalim. This Shabbos is the Shabbos where we begin our journey towards Passover, and it begins with reading about the ritual of contributing a half shekel to the Mishkan. And say, all of the Hasidic masters, why does God say, give me a half shekel? Why not a whole shekel? 
What's with a half shekel? Could have been just as easy. Give me a whole shekel. God says, you have to want to make a shekel whole. Nasevenishma, half shekel plus a half shekel, what you have and then what's next. Every moment is made up of where you are and what's next. Every dream is built from the half shekel that you don't yet see, but that in your contribution you evoke. You don't yet see it, but you call it forth. You don't yet know it, but you give it. And in your contribution, in your small half shekel, you change your universe. And you build God's mishkan. Your little half shekel goes a long way. Rosh Chodesh Adar. Tomorrow we'll bench and bless the new month of Adar, which we are told in some of the Hasidic books, it's told that Elul, which is the month before Rosh Hashanah, and Adar share that they're both the month before Rosh Hashanah. Nisan is also Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the month of Nisan. And so we're, in a sense, we're, we are calling forth the year at its halfway point. It's almost as if the year now is half a shekel big. And the other half a shekel is coming down the pike. And God blesses us this weekend. And it should be a blessing for all of our friends, wherever they are. That this snow is not a snow that harms in any way. But that it calls forth within us a yearning that maybe has been dormant. A desire to take our grandiose dreams and make them tangible. To see that person who is before us as the very embodiment of Mount Sinai standing with us. And in that moment, our ear can hear, not the big vision, but the nasa and the nishma, the nishma, the nishma, what is next? Are you my nishma? Are you what I am called to hear in this moment? I pray with you that God should bless us with the blessing of deep hearing, that where we are in the presence of another, we're in the presence of truth that our ears and hearts are wide open to receive the Torah that is coming down at that moment. And may God bless all of us chickens with turning towards the light. Amen.